Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we bring you a conversation between Acton's Director of Communications, Eric Cohn, and Congressman Peter Meyer, who took office in January as the representative for Michigan's 3rd Congressional District and recently visited the Acton building. They discuss bipartisanship, leadership, the often counterintuitive incentive structure that exists in the U.S. Congress, and much more. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act in Line on our website at actin.org slash actinline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Elected in 2020, Congressman Peter Meyer is a Republican representing Michigan's 3rd District, which is home to Grand Rapids and the Acton Institute. Prior to being sworn in as a member of Congress in January 2021, Meyer attended the United States Military Academy at West Point. Soon thereafter, he enlisted in the Army Reserves and deployed to Iraq, where he conducted intelligence operations to protect American and allied forces. Following his service in Iraq, Meyer joined Team Rubicon, a veteran-based disaster response organization, and then a conflict analysis NGO in Afghanistan. After leaving Afghanistan, he received his MBA from New York University. Congressman Peter Meyer, welcome to Act in Line. Thank you for having me on. Why did you want to be in Congress? To get things done, to move the country in a better direction, to try to get over the mismatch between short-term electoral incentives and long-term governing incentives. How's that going? Step by step, day by day. Day by day. I mean, as I'm reminded of T.S. Eliot that, you know, it, people tend to think that, you know, oh, some things will never happen. But, you know, it's the, in the words of T.S. Eliot, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause. There's, there's no such thing as a truly won cause. Um, so it, give, it does give us some hope in all of that. So as you, you've been in Congress for about five months now, mm-hmm. um, I was looking at some Axios analysis uh, the other day that you are uh, amongst the freshman class, one of the most bipartisan members of Congress. Um, is that something that you set out intentionally to do and to be? Uh, did it just kind of present itself as opportunities? Because we hear so much about polarization, the inability to work across the aisle. I'm, I'm interested as someone who seems to be doing it, um, how it's going, and uh, if you think there's any chance of that growing. So – One thing to understand is obviously having a democratically controlled house. Um, Your bill doesn't get to the floor if you don't have a bipartisan co-sponsor. If if you're a Democrat, your bill has a lower chance of getting introduced if it doesn't have a bipartisan co-sponsor. I serve on the Homeland Security, Foreign Affairs and Science-Based and Technology Committees. None of those are reflexively partisan. You don't have – traditional liberal versus conservative issues. Um, there may be some quibbling and disagreement kind of on the margins, on on the extent of engagement in one place or the dynamics of action in another. Um, but by and large, you know, I serve in areas where there is broad agreement and where the issues that are being put forth often are uh, often many of the bills I co-sponsor. Uh, they just go on the suspension calendar, right? They pass out of committee unanimously. There's not a ton of, of dissension on whether or not to condemn um, China's treatment of the weaker population, right? That's going to get overwhelming support because it's just acknowledging a truth. 
So I would say I didn't intend to be well, well, I obviously wanted to be productive, and, and I think in order to be productive, it, it helps to engage in a, a bipartisan and trusted way. Um, a lot of that score is not bipartisanship for you know appearances' sake, but because we're working on issues of legislation, whether it's on dealing with veterans, whether it's dealing with military or, or our, our national security, uh, that just lend themselves inherently to reaching across the aisle. Do you think there's a problem with the incentive structure in Congress that it, it you know, th- there are other members, of course, of the freshman class who don't appear anywhere near you on that analysis and don't seem as interested. So part of it, I'll, I'll, I take your point that it's the nature of the issues that you're working on. But, you know, you, as you mentioned, um, given the makeup of, of the House and all of that, if you want to move things forward, um, you need to be bipartisan. But it would seem that there are people just less interested in that. Is it just is that a cultural thing that you've observed? Oh, I mean, there are. You asked me the question, is there a problem with incentives? I mean, the obvious answer is yes. Uh, I remember one colleague um, who was being stripped of committees. She called a press conference. Um, I think we had a competing press conference. One or two cameras showed up when we we're talking about authorizations for use of military force, right, or things that are actually tangibly important and deal with mm-hmm. whether or not the president can send men and women to die in the name of the country. Right? Th- these are lofty, weighty issues um, that would barely get any attention. Meanwhile, um, you know, the the camera kind of flocks to you know the the political car accident, right, to kind of gawk and and, and stare. So it's. It makes sense that things are going to trend towards the extremes, right? You people, to, to paraphrase Dimitri Martin, um, nobody spray paints. Toy Story Two is okay. <laughs> you know, um, it's going to be either you, it's going to be love or hate, and a lot of what Congress does is or should be a little bit boring. Um, it, it may have very impactful outcomes, but it, it doesn't lend itself to, well, the people who are doing it are evil on this side and the ones who are trying to stop it. Are, are, you know, there is a lot more gray in many of those issues than I think our, our, our media and our entertainment cycle really amplify. And so the more that we can get away from simplistic narratives, the far better off um, we can be. But the challenge is, I mean, we view our world through narrative constructs. Uh, and that's just part of the human condition. So it'll inherently be a balancing act between who we are as individuals and, and what this is. But if it's certainly the case that if you're looking to find meaning and entertainment in politics, the politics becomes the worst when it seeks to offer both of those. I, I actually want to focus in on that. And before we zoom out to it, I want to ask you, about your congressional experience, what was the most and least surprising things you've encountered? I would say the the least surprising was just how the incentive is not geared towards um, that if you just kind of go with the flow. And, and we, we had some very difficult votes early on. Um, I would say that the least surprising was that there were folks who just didn't care. Right? Not a lot of them, but – you know, there, there's an argument and a debate over whether you know a representative is more of a um, you know a, a fiduciary, right, where you are given a trust to exercise judgment, and um, or whether your job is to figure out what a majority of the individuals in your district care about at any one time and represent that. And I would add an asterisk that oftentimes it's not what a majority of your constituents 
feel. It's what a majority of your supporters within your half of the constituency uh, would feel at any one point in time. I obviously take the take the former approach that um, you know we have. Yes, we're, we're a democracy. We're also a republic, and we, we try to balance those two philosophies between you know mob rule on the one hand, um, while protecting things that we feel a little bit more sacred, and recognizing the fact that people change their minds. People are persuadable. Um, what somebody passionately believes one day, we not only you know should expect that they may change or alter um, some components of that in time. Or not even just believe, but how they, they view and judge a situation that they may change over time, but that we want to let people change their minds. I think that's one of the dangerous things about – I hate the term cancel culture, but it's the best term for this. Yeah, um, yeah. That there's just – there's no accounting for maturation. There's no accounting for evolution. It's, well, you had a, a, a wrong think opinion two decades ago. How dare you regardless of, of where you are today, right? That we – um, we should all be so perfect as, as the you know, inquisitors. Um, but on – specifically on where I was off, um, on that, that least surprising component, I would say the most surprising – and this is what I just – I really struggle with is I, I'd always had the assumption that there's somebody who has a plan, right? Uh, you just need to like, find the right person and – and not that that's, that's a substitute, but you know, I'm, I'm a freshman member. Right? I've been here less than six months. I can, I can diagnose a lot of the things that I see that are not functioning well, but I'm not going to be so arrogant as to think that I have the solutions for those right now. Right? Um, and it's just that hope that maybe there is somebody with more experience and you know, that, that can kind of have the, a, a deeper well to draw from and, and has an insight and a vision and – I would say the most surprising was just that I haven't really found that person exists. And this, and I have to say, I am, I am reflexively opposed to conspiratorial thinking, not because I don't believe somebody could try to – there isn't a malevolent, you know, individuals who wouldn't want to have that happen. It's I've never met anyone vaguely capable of carrying out, you know, a mass deception, Right. Anyone who served in the military, in the intelligence community or, or anything else, I mean the fact that people just are, are – you know, they'll get drunk at a bar and they'll say <laughs> something, right? They'll, they'll, they'll want to boast and brag and, or, or they'll just – yeah. <sighs> uh, the pollster Kristen Soltis Anderson, I thought I always had a great way of putting it when she was asked what surprised her about coming to Washington was every uh, – she went there hoping it would be um, – uh, the Aaron Sorkin West, West Wing. Wing. Yeah. Um, everyone told her it would be House of Cards. It's Veep. Yeah. Um, so you'd mentioned even that gives them a little bit too much credit <laughs> because in Veep, some people knew what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned persuasion in there. Um, I often think that we have this totalizing view of a lot of things in life now, where we think you know it's all one thing, it's all another thing. That there's it, and, and it seems to me, and it seems to a lot of people that there isn't a lot of persuasion that's going on. There's not a lot of people trying to make an argument that they're for what politics actually is. Right, you're better served being in my coalition than the one you're in now. Is is it something that's going on, and we're just kind of missing it because so much attention is geared towards um, some of the craziness out there, or you know, perhaps it is going on, but there just isn't enough of it. I think it exists, but it, it almost exists more at the, the the personal relationship level, 
right? Like you, you won't be persuaded by somebody that you can immediately discount or, or say, well, they're only saying that because X or Y or Z, right? And um, we have it within the right. It's like, well, you know, I'm not going to listen to anything this person says because they're MAGA or because they're never Trump or, you know, it, it, these just baseline rejections that prevent you from being able to Say, all right, let's step beyond whatever we're getting our dukes up for, right, and, and, and them's fighting words. Um, and and I, it's the exact same thing on the left where, I mean, it's just the – there's always a degree of ad hominem and, and that it's like, well, I don't need to listen to what this person says because um, they had some opinion I disagreed with. So that – that that makes it a bit more challenging on the persuasion side in general and just the, the overall balkanization, right? Like you don't have – partially because of the tribal sorting of on a lot of issues, you don't have people naturally convening or coalescing around um, an issue where they, they – there are differences of opinion in other places, right? I mean you used to have you know, pro-life and pro-choice Democrats. Or you sorry, you used to have pro-life Democrats. You used to have pro-choice Republicans, right? You used to have, um, you know, Republicans who advocate for gun control and and kind of more hardline blue dog um, Democrats who wanted uh, who were strong proponents of the Second Amendment. Oh, forty years ago, if I asked if you were Republican or Democrat, I'd have to ask a follow-up question to find out if you were liberal or conservative, and it's sorted. And and I think that creates a a homogenizing belief structure where everybody you talk to. Or you assume that everyone believes as you do because those who you associate with believe as you do as well. I, I, I quipped earlier if I you know, were king for a day, what were the one thing I would propose? And it would be some degree of mandatory national service because right now with the exception of jury duty and the post office, if you have enough money or you're in the right circumstance, you choose where you live. You choose where you work. You choose where you go to school. All of those associations um, allow – Americans to have just vastly different and individualized paths, which is a wonderful thing. But we're very big, we're very broad, we're a very diverse country, and if we seek to operate as a whole, there needs to be that that sense of understanding and and empathy. And how do we force folks from vastly disparate backgrounds to get on a same mission and on the same team? Well, I mean, standing in line at the post office or maybe getting called up for jury duty. I mean, those are the only two kind of shared national things that we have. And, well, and even still, those are things that for the most part we try to avoid, right? You know, you go to FedEx if you want to make sure that something you're shipping is going to get there and you try to get out of jury duty if you have to get out of jury duty. I'm, I'm curious with that. You, you, you'd spoken to our staff here at Acton prior mm-hmm. and you'd mentioned that uh, king for a day idea. Um it seems focused around the idea of building a sense of uh, community. Do you think that can be built through something compulsive like that that is required of you? Um, how much do you think that there is that the kind of part of the American spirit that rejects being told what to do that will recoil from that, that it could have that as an unintended consequence? Oh, no. I mean I, I would um, expect that most folks would dread it and hate it and – would bond in their shared dreading and hating, right? I mean, that was the most beautiful thing of the military was just you were miserable, but you were miserable with a bunch of people. And, and I still haven't, there's, there's got to be a German word for this, but that moment in which something is 
like the misery compounds to a comical degree. And you're just like, I'm so cold and so wet and so tired. And I'm actually loving this right now. I mean, you just like tip past the point of being annoyed to just, you know, throwing your arms Almost up. Almost amused and, by yeah, how yeah, bad like, it is. Uh, yeah. You know, I could say it couldn't get worse, but it probably could. <laughs> um, but that sense of like you don't. If if you have no bounds, right? If you have every opportunity, um, you know, think of think of hydraulic fluid, right? I mean, it, it takes on its 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 strength when it's put under pressure. You take that pressure away, and it just oozes all over the place. I, I think a lot of individuals have those characteristics, um, but who you are as an, as as an individual has to, is almost inherently going to be defined against who you're not and it's going to be defined in those contrasting moments and that's what I think is one of the wonderful things about military services that offers you time and again contrasting opportunities to low and learn to low that was a combination of learn and grow mm. uh, to low um, to learn and to grow and to, to kind of step beyond what you have um, and and even if that means you're you're creating a shared experience in, in rebellion um, that shared experience can be very powerful and helpful. I should trademark low. Um, oh, yeah. It's got vision and creativity, visionivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, uh, what's your philosophy on public service? Because you're a public servant now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a member of Congress. What, what was your philosophy is, um, in I, – I asked you why you wanted to be in Congress. Um, it, it gets back to that a little bit, but uh, you know, it, it's a bit of what motivated you. But you know, what, what is your philosophy on how you're trying to be a public servant? I think uh, – I would say there are two main components. One is what I call the just don't be a hypocrite, right? Have some intellectual honesty and consistency. Um, and that that perhaps – perhaps in my searching for that, there are some times where I'm – I will say, well, I, I'll be honest. I do not know, mm-hmm. right? Not – or or I have my, my instinct, um, but I don't like to extend too far beyond my own – education um, or or experience. Um, that's not to say that a, a bill comes up that is completely outside of a domain that I'm familiar with, right? Afghanistan. Right? When I was in Afghanistan, I was probably one of the top 10 or 15 analysts in the country. I was briefing ambassadors, right? I was contributing to think tank reports. Um, I don't need to think too long and hard to have a, a strong opinion or, or to evaluate what direction I feel would be most beneficial. Um, when it comes to entitlement reform, again, I have my my baseline instincts, but I want that to be borne out by an evidentiary analysis as well, right? So I may not be as eager to grasp on to a track um, until I've had time to analyze and to study. So that that the goal of intellectual honesty and, and non hypocrisy, so that um, I can consistently call balls and strikes. That's not dependent on what color, you know the the jersey that the batter is wearing. Right? Well, at least with – I think it may be something else, at least as I'm hearing it, is at least with hypocrisy, um, it reveals an underlying ideal. The ideal exists and you're not living up to it, which you know is not always necessarily great. But I think the, the far worse thing would be to just say either the ideal doesn't exist or shouldn't exist because people are inconsistent about it. And I think we hear way too much argument for that these days. Oh, I mean it's – at least, yeah, with hypocrisy, what's the, the – um, the, the attributed virtue pays to vice. vice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or vice pays to virtue. Yeah. But if you didn't have any virtue to begin with, then you couldn't be hypocritical. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of one of the ironic things about some. And I try to not refer to folks in the concrete sense, so I have a bit more liberty. But one particular Florida 
congressman. Um, if there's, it almost can't be hypocritical if there's no virtue to begin with. Mm-hmm. If it's just pure, unabashed ego, um, there's something fascinating about that. But also incredibly reprehensible, assuming the allegations are borne out. Um, when it comes to the other goal, it's to always be thinking in that long term, right? I mentioned at the very beginning that maturity mismatch between short-term electoral incentives and long-term governing incentives. It's very easy to think about something and just think of what the immediate consequence is going to be. It's much harder to work out that M plus one, M plus two, you know, what, what are the secondary and third order effects that I need to be considerate of? When I look at a decision like January 6th and the consequences of that, you know, the, the non-hypocrite in me, the one who wants to have a virtue, even if occasionally vice gets in, would say, OK, shoes on the other foot. What would we do if the presidents were reversed, right? What would we do if you – know, crazy, zany scenario, but um, if, if Obama was the president and he encouraged a mob to, to prevent him from you know, getting replaced by Mitt Romney in 2012? I'm pretty sure the Tea Party would probably not cotton to that, right? I'm pretty sure that a lot of those folks looking for excuses and and rationality and and, and rationalizations um, and, and sort of backpedaling would be grabbing pitchforks. So it's just it's hard to defend the those searching for false equivalencies and um, bad faith arguments. And when those false equivalencies and bad faith arguments become almost like a a mobilizing, organizing factor, um, you can't help but just assume that things are are way astray Uh, and and in ways that I think are not viscerally evident but are incredibly – but that that honestly scare me because there's just – there's no – there's no consistency. It's just unmoored, untethered Um, and and that could easily go – in, in good directions, the, the, the current, the wind could take it in, in a very positive direction or um, it, could, it could not. Why are we having such a difficult time thinking long term like that in, in politics and government and in culture? I mean, it's, there, there is very much a here and now. I mean, I, I have my own theories on it that I, I think part of it has to do with just the rapidity of information mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the – we we talked a lot about a couple of years ago the um the Sorabamari broadside against David French that kind of launched in the philosophical world this conversation about post liberalism and one of the things that I observed that to me was fascinating was here's a guy in New York City talking about something that happened in Sacramento, California. Mm-hmm. And if you were to go back 30 years when the internet really isn't a thing, we don't have social media, and you were to say that, hey, there's this thing going on in Sacramento where drag queens are reading storybooks to children, you would hear in Grand Rapids, the person would probably go, huh, that's weird. And then you'd move on with your day. But now things seem, even if they're far away, like they're right next door. Um, so we deal with everything in the immediate rather than thinking long term mm-hmm. about things. Um, I'm curious from your perspective and experience, why you think that seems to be a trend? I, I think there's there's also a certain arrogance that are our, our, our hubris, that our access to information and our assumption that we can optimize and control the world. Um, there's there's a, a hubris that, that, that lens that I think extends into a lot of other realms where we can't just 
say, we don't know, or, well, our best guess is this. I mean, look at the CDC's guidance around the coronavirus. Um, it has to be all it – it's going to be absolute. That we can add the touch of our fingertips, access generations of – or millennia of, of information and just of, of untold largesse um, really flies in the face of a lot of what we should be practicing, which is a degree of humility. Like I can, I can, I can access this, but is that definitive? Can I know everything? Um, and I think when it comes to to politics, and I, you see this with kind of conspiracy theorists on both sides, and, and I've um, had many, many a conversation here where we assume that all knowledge that fits our priors, you know, can stand without questioning. And, and I tend not to be preachy in a lot of realms because I'm still learning. I'm still grappling. I'm still – like I – those who speak most assuredly are oftentimes the people that flame out the fastest because they lose any sense of, of, of gut check of, of saying, well, you know, this is my best operating assumption, but things might change, right? So I, I just don't – I think our, our brains are broken on the one hand um, from this little phone that keeps ringing here. Our, our, our brains are utterly broken with that, that sort of dopamine addiction hit, right? And that, that, that assumption that we can access anything and that we, we have perfect knowledge and that we can optimize and that there's no room for chance. There's no room for serendipity. There's no room for any of kind of the mysteries of life to kind of come in. Um, and I tend to think that those mysteries of life force a degree of humility, force a degree of openness um, to – Maybe I'm not right about this, right? We we should have our, our operating assumption, but we should also be questioning that from time to time. And I think there's – you see nothing of that in some of the messianic fervor in some areas of our politics. You see nothing of that humility or that, um, that doubt um, or just – no way. I, I'm going to keep an open mind. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, those are incredibly rare characteristics um, because if if you are on the side of right, then the other has to be on the side of wrong. Um, and if you're on the side of right, then you know you're. Uh, why question that? Why doubt? On your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as a subsidiarity proponent. Um, give me your thoughts on that, and how would you distinguish that from the thread? both amongst politicians and amongst some sectors of the right now, talking about a conception of the common good animating their approach to everything. Yeah, I've yet to be really sold on common good conservatism um, or, frankly, any of the sort of philosophical spaghetti on the wall, see what sticks type of um, approaches we're seeing from all all components, mostly because just about every single one seems to blame and I've never really fully understood this because having – at least in my short time in Washington, I've yet to see any libertarian have any real purchase or, or control over anything. But and they yet, run everything. I'm told. Yeah, and yet yeah. They're, they're somehow the enemy. Um, but how everything has this strain of, of populism and it can be more cloaked in a softer blanket with common sense good or um, in, a, in a harder blanket like some of the national populism efforts. Um, it, none of it changes the fact that – it's a bunch of folks running to the front of the parade, grabbing the baton and pretending to lead it, right? I mean, that's um, – I, I, I guess it, I'm a fan that they're trying. That's good. Um, but not really sold that, that there's anything there. 
that a broader sense of where do we go from here on, on sort of that right, um, I, I tend to start with, well, what has been demonstrated to work? Right? And this is where I come to subsidiarity. What has been demonstrated to work? What, what institutions do you see that run well? I think county road commissions function very, very well because they are uh, one of the lower levels of government that can analyze its needs, have long-term capital asset management plans. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I drive on and, some and of those. And a singularity of purpose. Right. Singularity of yeah. purpose. And, and it is who's paying and what they're receiving is pretty well identified. And that's not to get into too much statutory rev share on the sure, state sure, sure. side, right? But um, then you look at entities that don't function well and they tend to be of – amorphous purpose. Uh, they tend to be f- abstracted from the, the consequence of their everyday actions. And, and some of that's going to be inherent, right? You're not going to have um, the Department of Homeland Security, very nebulous, right? Um, I, I'm in the on, the on the committee and we were in this center where it was very big and fancy and talking about how they react to various incidences. And I was like, wait, how – wait, so are, Where's your product going? Oh, this product is to figure out how we will react internally to a pipeline disruption. Oh, so it's not how the country reacts. No, no, no. It's how we react. Okay. So you have these these kind of wheels within wheels in Mm -hmm. in some of these agencies um, where you can't help but uh, think of the office baselines. Like, so what exactly do you do around (laughs) here? I'm a people person. Um, You see that a lot more at the federal government than you do at a state and local where you have to – you have a clearly defined – what is your responsibility? Who is responsible for this? And if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. We feel a lot more the presence or an absence of a mayor or a governor than, frankly, we do of a president, right? You, you could have, you know, if, if the trash isn't getting picked up, uh, if the police aren't out on, on the streets, like you feel that. And, and to me, there's no better way of trying to reprise and kind of get away from this abstraction and this rudderlessness of our, of our federal government than to return it to that more closely held, continuously justify and or continuously have a justification for your actions rather than just going on federal autopilot as we have. And, and on those lower levels, you know who to fire too, mm-hmm. right? If there, if something's not getting done, there's someone you know to hold accountable and I, I juxtapose that in my mind with the uh, – Bureaucracy. Well, well, yes, or, or even just some of the way that things function within the the body that you know you serve in the other chamber of it. I remember the senator from Colorado uh, during um, the previous administration having a freakout that they would remove the memo from the Department of Justice saying that there wouldn't be federal prosecutions in states that have lifted or have legalized marijuana, mm-hmm. um, and demanding that that advisory guidance be replaced when you're a senator. You can introduce legislation. You can work on these things um, in a way that y- it's harder to not be held accountable if you're the road commissioner and the roads aren't getting fixed. Well, because it, you can always claim credit whether or not that credit deserves to be claimed. Mm-hmm. You can always be blamed whether or not that blame deserves to be owned. Um, but so much, I think, of, of the challenges that are our responsibility, accountability set up in this country is not geared towards – credit where credit is due, it's geared towards blame avoidance at all cost. You know, as long as I'm able to wash my hands of it, then I'm fine, right? Not my problem. Um, and, and yet I think of in our foreign policy, I think that was one of President Obama's failings with the Syrian conflict. 
is thinking that he could just wash his hands of it and ignore. Um, there are some things that whether you like to or not, you're going to be forced to deal with. On a domestic context, um, you know, there's a lot more <laughs> – you, you start to see kind of that ball rolling in the opposite, you know. I don't have a really good analogy for this. But it, you, you're, there's a lot – it's a lot more problematic to try to stop something bad from happening um, even if you end up, you know, causing a better outcome because you can't you, – you'll only be blamed for what did happen, not what didn't. And, and at the end of the day, I think government's role should be to be thinking long-term, thinking ahead rather than just focusing on the immediate here and now. But the here and now is all the public is thinking about too, which means it should be the responsibility of your elected officials to be thinking long-term. So we're not heading towards this cliff, right? If you're just – you know, at the local level, you see it with, well, how come our pensions are out of balance? Well, because mayor so-and-so or councilman whatever negotiated – a terrible deal that they should be held responsible for and, and punished. If you're trying to figure out, well, how come our federal debt just went to $30 trillion, who are you going to blame to that? There's a lot of blame to go around, but none of it's actually going to stick. And when everybody's guilty of everything, nobody's guilty of anything. Yeah. Um, so I just vote no all the time. Right? <laughs> you, uh, I actually do vote. As we mentioned, yeah, the bipartisan. bipartisan yes. um, you're in Congress. Legislation is the tool at your disposal. Uh, what do you think is the biggest problem we're facing now that can't be solved through legislation? I, I would say our how we have taken our as a culture sort of our search for meaning and put that into politics, right? Not not governance, politics. I would say there's no legislative fix to that. I mean, I mentioned national service as one potential – as one avenue that would chip away at the edges. But I just think of all of the – this is why I'm so glad for things to be reopening on just a, an emotional level, right? For Pete's sake, go to church. Watch sports, right? Find if, – if you're looking for meaning in, in politics, if you're looking for meaning in kind of earthly figures and that's your, your kind of messianic – devotion, um, you will be disappointed. You will be led astray. Um, there's, an, there's an idolatry there that I think is we, – we've seen the toxicity of and this is on both sides, though maybe a bit more pronounced on one at the moment. But how we have – we need more outlets. We need more outputs. There's there are, there are kind of release valves that within a civilizational context, I think humanity – demands and requires. Um, and when you sort of cap some of those valves, unpredictable things happen, right? I think without the lockdowns, you don't have the riots that we saw over the past summer, right? I mean, there are, there are just some things on a cultural psychology level um, or, or psychology of, of crowds, maybe more so, but um, broader speaking that, I mean, we are just in a, in a period of flux and transition as as sort of a nation as a, in our politics, but also if you think of just the acceleration, I mean, my grandma just turned 102. Wow. Right? Wonderful. I mean, she, when she was born, there were rudimentary biplanes, you know, um, 10, you know, 15 years before in her mother's lifetime, right? It went from first flight, Wright brothers, 
to we're on the moon. I, I just flew from Chicago to Grand Rapids yesterday. I mean, and she was born. The travel from Chicago to Grand Rapids would have taken probably, you A know, week. at least, yeah. It, it, I spent 30 minutes in the air. Yeah. No, I mean, so just if you, and, and, and we're, that acceleration, I mean, you, I, I don't think we fully process what that interconnectivity means. And, um, and to get back to the question, I don't think there's a legislative solution for that. I mean, I think there are some things where um, we, we, our philosophy and just everything needs to get to a better place. And the challenge is that, especially with the dopamine-induced orientation, there's no – I mean, my gosh, I look at the beds on my bookstand and how often I endeavor to sit back and read for an hour before I go to sleep. And probably I shouldn't be saying this because I, I, I hope to achieve the point where I get back into that mm-hmm. flux. But how often that hour spent reading and, and ex- going outside of my own experience and, and kind of getting into another rhythm and having this sort of centering opportunity, how often that is lost by an hour of, of scrolling, um, of doom scrolling, that I have no idea what actually – what tangible deliverable came from it. Except that I probably found 15 new things to worry about, right? When we're doing that on a mass level, um, it's it's speeding things up that probably should we should be trying to slow down so that we're getting onto a better path. Congressman Peter Meyer, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actinline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actinline, I'm Gabriel Zhajnak.